Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. That song says, you saw my condition, had a plan from the start, your son for redemption, the price for my heart. I think that's a a beautiful, perfect lead in to uh, what we're going to talk about tonight as we see how baptism paints this uh, beautiful picture for us as we pass from death to life, as we walk wisely in the newness of life. Uh, To see that, we'll be in the book of Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6. We'll start around verse 18 and end up around uh, verse 11 of chapter 6. Um, and we'll, we'll start here by reading in Romans chapter 5. And we're just going to jump right in, if that's all right. Are you all good with that? Okay, let's go. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 begins, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as one man's disobedience, for as by one man, for by, as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So we sort of jump in there mid-thought. Paul has, uh, is concluding his, his case that Jesus, his, his argument that Jesus is the second Adam. Tim Keller would say he's the true and better Adam. Adam being the father of the human race. He was the, the first human created by God. And he was given a command to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know, of course, he did eat of that fruit, of that tree. And we know that he, by doing so, introduced sin and death into the world. The peace and harmony of the garden was shattered. And then he and his wife Eve, they realized they were naked and ashamed and they went to hide. And God came walking through the garden in the cool of the day and said, where are you? And they said, we're right here. Thus losing the first hide and seek game. In spectacular fashion, to be fair, they had to kind of come up with it on the fly. You know, that's not their fault. But eating the fruit was, and God told them, hey, now the earth is cursed, y'all. You have brought sin and death into the world. You're going to have to get out of the garden. But if you're reading up to that point, if you've been following along from Genesis 1, 2, and 3... The reader has got to be thinking, okay, well, they're going to die now. They weren't supposed to eat the fruit of that tree. They were told they would surely die, and then they don't die. Something else dies. They were given skin of an animal to clothe them. How, of course, would they 
would God have made the skin from the animal except that an animal who had not done anything wrong up until that point, an innocent one, has to perish. And that begins a cycle that could be summarized by a quote from Lloyd Alexander, an American author, death begets death begets death. I mean, in just the next chapter, chapter 4 of Genesis, Adam and Eve's children, Cain kills his brother, murders his brother Abel. Romans 5.14 says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. From the first man to, to Moses, it is a story after story of, of evil reigning, death reigning. It was death's kingdom on earth. By the time we get to Genesis 6 even, the scripture says that the Lord saw the wickedness of men was great on the earth and, had, and, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was to do was only evil continually. And God floods the earth, and only a remnant is saved. Noah and and his family are saved by by the ark. But even after that, that didn't fix it. Every story, every scene, it seems like evil reigns and death with it. We follow in Adam's footsteps. And in our passage in chapter 5, verse 20, it said that when the law came... When the law got there through Moses, sin only increased. It only got worse. You would think, you would think it's because, all right, they're, they're to borrow a, a semi-modern term, they're wiling out right now because they don't have any kind of rules. Adam was the only one that got rules. He broke his one rule. So now, so now they're acting crazy. But they got the law. Moses is coming down from the mountain. He's got the law. He's got the tablets in his hands. They're going to get right now. And they were, not, they were already not right. They'd already made a golden calf and called it Yahweh. They already made their own God. It just got worse from there. All that the law did was put names on the things that they were breaking. The law showed just how far we have fallen short. From one transgression leads to condemnation and death. So, but one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. Just as by one man's disobedience, the many, us, were made sinners, by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The law, the text says that the law came to increase the trespass. We could read that as the law came to really shine light on just how bad, just how much evil there was in the world. Sin had spread, it had abounded, but grace abounds all the more. Where sin and death once reigned, now Jesus and eternal life reign because grace is greater than evil. In every moment that sin had its turn, every moment that death had its reign, was another moment that God's grace would triumph over it, would trump it. So Paul says, if where evil spreads, grace abounds much greater over it, should we just continue to sin that grace may abound? 
He brings up this objection. Maybe it's an objection that he heard once, or maybe it's just as he's writing, he's thinking, somebody's going somebody's gonna to bring this up. I've got to answer this question. He's basically asking, if grace is better than evil, and if where evil spreads, grace just spreads even more, why don't we keep doing evil? In other words, what's stopping us from doing bad things if God's grace is going to just cover it all? And Paul says, by no means. Wrong question. You're not asking the, the right thing. Why would you who believe in Jesus want to continue doing evil? If you believe in Jesus, the evil you, the sinful you, was buried, and the new born-again you emerged from the grave. So why do you want to live like you're dead? To walk wisely, we must be crucified with Christ. To walk wisely, we must be crucified with Christ. We perceive freedom as the ability, the option, the opportunity to choose to do what we want to do. Whatever we want to make ourselves happy, we have the freedom to go and get that thing. But true freedom is to live how we are created. Consider the squirrel. A squirrel is created to be a squirrel, right? It's got four legs and a bushy tail. It can jump impressively. Some squirrels even have a little bit of wing action, so they can glide a little ways. But they are not birds. Squirrels are not birds. If a squirrel climbs to the top of the tree and decides, today I'm going to exercise my freedom to become a bird, and it jumps off the top of that tree, it's not going to go well. Best case scenario, gets taken by a hawk on the way down. True freedom is to live how we're created to live. We're created to glorify God. It's Olympic season. I can identify with Olympic athletes because I used to run track. I do not identify with Olympic athletes in this. I was not fast. I started my track career in high school to bright, short-lived years. I was in high school for four years. Only two of them were track. I started as a sprinter. I was very slow as a sprinter. I finished last in every heat. I did not like that. Somebody said, you'll do better if you run farther. And I said, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And they pointed out, no, you run slower. And I thought, well, okay, I'm interested. So I did distance. And I still was not very fast, but I was not the slowest. And I was okay with that. An Olympian trains their whole life to run fast, to compete, right? I think about, the, 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 uh, of all the track events, the 400, the 400 meters is the one that gets me. Because my career as a sprinter, I ran as fast as I could for 200 meters, and then I stopped. Now, I didn't do very well when I did it, but I at least knew, okay, like, this is as far as I can go at this speed, and then I stopped. The 800, which is half a mile, and the 1600, which is a mile, I knew that I could pace myself. I ran slow, and then I ran a little bit faster at the end and did okay. The 400 meters is exactly between those two things, and it is the worst. It's one lap. One lap doesn't seem like that far, but that's the problem. It's too far to run slow. That didn't make sense. It's too short to run slow, but it's too far to run fast. 
And then in the Olympics, they put hurdles, so you have to jump over stuff. It doesn't make any sense. And sometimes they do relays, so you have to hand something to somebody at the end. That doesn't make sense to me either. But in the Olympics, people line up, they run for the 400, right? They all agree, they all agree to, to uh, rules that say you're going to stay in your lane. You know, the people on the outside, they start a little farther ahead. The people on the inside, they start a little farther back. You've got to stay in, in your lane. You've got to stay within your parameters. You've got to jump over the hurdles if you have hurdles. And then if you make it to the end, you get the glory. You get the prize, right? Olympic gold. At the very least, you get to say you finished an Olympic event. But they're running for gold, right? They're running for glory. But then you might say, well, why not exercise your freedom? If, if the goal is to finish first, why not exercise your freedom and just cut it through the infield, right? You may have a couple obstacles. You may have to jump over the sand pit, but that's what the sand pit's there for is to jump over it, right? So why not just go through the middle? You could probably shave off 150, 200 meters that way. You would for sure win, right? Except that you wouldn't. You would not get the glory. You would get disgrace. You'd be disqualified. Freedom is not choosing what we want to do. Freedom is living how we were created for. We were created for the glory of God. We were created to be satisfied, to be made happy by the glory of God. Adam and Eve had everything they needed in the garden to be free. But they thought they'd take one little shortcut and eat the fruit, and while it tasted good, it, it introduced sin and death into the whole world. So Paul says, why would you want to go back to that? If grace triumphs over your evil, why even consider going back? Don't you know, Christian, you were baptized into Jesus' death. And this is our transition into, into Paul using this analogy of baptism, this explanation of what baptism is to show us how to walk in, in, uh, in Christ and in, in, uh, in beginning with this baptism. Don't you know you're baptized into death? You were crucified with Christ. Baptism, believe it or not, we Baptists, we didn't invent it. But a guy with Baptist in his name did. John, well, he may not have invented it, but he certainly brings it onto the scene in earnest in the New Testament. John the Baptist shows up in Matthew 3, Mark chapter 1, and Luke chapter 3. I think it's Luke 3. Uh, you can look it up and tell me at some point during the sermon. It's fine. Uh, so he shows up in the Synoptic Gospels, and at least in Matthew 3, and I think Mark, he's described as wearing camel hair, um, which I'm guessing based on the description was uncommon uh, and probably itchy. Uh, just guessing on that point. He, uh, he ate locust and wild honey. And I got to assume that he dipped the locust in the honey, right? And wouldn't you assume with a name like John the Baptist that he would have dumped the locust in the honey, I was nervous that that one wasn't going to land. I'm <laughs> impressed. No more jokes from here out. Isaiah prophesied John the Baptist. You think he just comes out of nowhere as like this kind of weird guy. But Isaiah said, no, there's going to be a guy that's going to be, he's going to come before Jesus. He's going to stand in the wilderness. He's going to say, prepare ye the way for the Lord. Make straight his path. He is Jesus' hype man. He's the forerunner. And he comes bringing this baptism. 
And he's set up at the river, and he's calling primarily the people of Israel to come and be baptized, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Israel would have thought, no, we are the kingdom. We're the people in the Old Testament. We're the descendants of Abraham. We are God's chosen people. But there was always a tension in the Old Testament. What really counts as God's people? And the answer always was and always is faith. Noah had faith when God told him that he was going to flood the earth. And Noah believed God and built the ark and was saved. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness in Genesis 15. Rahab believed God and did not perish with Jericho. Naomi, I mean Ruth, believed in Naomi's God and followed her mother-in-law to God's people and became part of God's people. John the Baptist would have, been, would have had a primarily Jewish audience. People who would have believed, we're the descendants of Abraham. I have Jewish parents, therefore I'm Jewish. That's what they would have thought. And they would have pointed to circumcision as the proof of that, the sign given when you're a very young child, too young to make your own decisions. But John the Baptist comes through saying, your birthright has nothing to do with whether you're in Jesus' kingdom. He says... Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So he says, repent, turn. You're running towards sin. Run to the father's arms. Turn and run. Run into this water and be baptized because your birthright will not save you. Like for us, our church attendance is not what saves us. Our family history is not what saves us. And so Jesus comes and you think Jesus is going to come now baptize the baptizer. He's going to come baptize John. And that's not how it went. Jesus is like, you're going to baptize me. And Jesus gets in the water and is baptized by John and the heavens open up. And the father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus from then incorporates this baptism into his ministry. His disciples baptize. When he's resurrected and, and delivers the great commission, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the father, son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Holy Spirit, why? Why would, why baptism? Well, it's unlike anything in any other religion because it doesn't save us. It doesn't fix us. It's not mythical. It's special. It's a symbol of what happens in our hearts. And it doesn't happen at a certain age. It's not like, oh, you're five, you're six, you're 10, you're 12. It's time to get baptized. No, it happens upon our, our admission of faith in Jesus. Baptism is not our conversion. You would think it would be the entry point into our faith, but really the entry point into faith is faith. It's the belief in Jesus. Baptism is just a picture of that. And then baptism is something you have to choose to do. You have to walk into the water. And then when you get there, there's no command for who can baptize other than another person who believes and there's no prescription for where it must take place. It doesn't have to take place here, though it, it can. We have the material to make it happen. But if we didn't have that, we could roll a steel tub out on the stage. 
It would be heavy, but we could do it. Or, if not that, we could go to the river or the creek or the ocean or a hole in the ground or a bathtub or a barrel. Because it's a picture, a beautiful, rich image of what happens in our hearts and souls when we believe and think about baptized unto his death, that moment, that brief moment that you're under the water. You are wholly dependent on the person baptizing you to bring you up out of that water. And in that, in that moment that you're under, you're identifying with what Jesus did on the cross and in the grave. In verses 5 through 7 of chapter 6, where we've been united with him, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We were slaves to sin, to evil. We were chained to it. We could not and would not, if we could do anything to make ourselves right, we were doomed, like Adam, to follow him. But one act of righteousness leads to justification in life because Jesus is the true and better Adam. He is better than Adam. When he became human, like Adam, he was obedient, unlike Adam. So he should have been coronated as a king. But instead, he was crucified because he was humble, unlike Adam, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. And when he died, we died. Our old selves were crucified with him. When you enter that water in baptism, it's a picture of what happened in your heart. It's as if you entered the grave with Jesus, the evil you, the disobedient you, the one that's enslaved to do evil and sin. That is what's crucified with Christ. That you was placed in the grave. And baptism is the symbol of that. But here's the thing, and this is the part where it gets good. You don't stay under that water when you're baptized, do you? Because going under is just half the story. To walk wisely, we must be raised to new life in Christ. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. When you're baptized, the person who baptizes you brings you back up. Your old self went in the grave with Jesus, but Jesus did not stay in the grave, did he? Did, did he? That's not where he is, is it? So, like the song said, in three days in darkness slept the morning sun of righteousness, but rose to shame the throes of death and overturned his rule. Jesus overturned death's rule, death's reign that we read about in chapter 5 was overturned by Jesus because the stone was rolled away to the glory of God the Father and to the glory of God the Father, Jesus walked out of the grave and people saw him and they rejoiced to the glory of God and the tomb is still empty to the glory of God. So when you came out of that water, it wasn't under your own power because you do nothing to save yourself. But Jesus was raised and took you out of the grave with him to the glory of God. Baptism is a picture of that. When you come out of the water, the evidence is there. You're wet, you're dripping. Everyone knows, everyone knows 
and has the evidence that you're alive. And just like the empty grave is evidence that Jesus got out of his grave, baptism is evidence that you got out of yours. And when you come out of the water, you do so in the presence of witnesses, people who know that you've been set free by your faith in Christ. Just as Christ's resurrection communicated to his witnesses that their faith was alive and well, baptism demonstrates your faith and calls others to believe like you. And when you come out of the water, you have a moment on which you can forever reflect and remind yourself how alive you are based on Christ's work and not on yours. And when you come out of the water, it symbolizes what, is, what happened when you believe that you became new and you're now raised to walk in the newness of life. We know that Christ, verse 9, being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Who you were, you were enslaved to sin. You were bound to do what was wrong. All you could do, you were cursed to heap piles of dirt on your own grave. But Jesus did what only Jesus could do. And now you're alive. And when you came out of that water, you're telling everyone in the world that you're, Jesus, you're in Jesus' kingdom. You're one of Jesus' people now. Not because your parents were Christians, not because you attended church in your youth, not because you try really hard to obey. It's not because you're from Wilkesboro where there are 200 churches, Christian churches. It's not because you're a member of Wilkesboro Baptist Church or a member of any church. It's not because you're watching church online this morning. It has nothing to do with your birthright. It's your faith, your belief. It's because Jesus demonstrated his own love in that while you were still evil, he died for you. While I was still evil, he died for me. And when we get baptized, we're saying that Jesus is our Savior. You're painting a picture of what he did for you and what he'll do for all those watching. And we're identifying ourselves upon baptism with all those throughout the world and throughout human history who say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive all the honor and the glory. So walk wisely with your new life. Live like you're alive. You're not enslaved to sin anymore. It has no rule over you. You're not bound to be angry to lust, to want your what your neighbor has, to treat others poorly, or to do anything that doesn't glorify God. You're not bound to those things anymore. But you're also not bound to live with the guilt and shame of those things when you do fail. You're dead to sin and you're alive in Christ. When you mess up, you're no less new because Jesus has taken Adam's place. He is the true and better. You followed Adam to the things that led to your grave, but Jesus went into that grave and got you out. So when you fail, you have nowhere to hide, but you have no reason to hide. Your chains are gone. You've been set free. Where sin abounds, grace abounds for you. Grace is greater than sin. Jesus trampled over death and life, and his grace is more amazing than death. And like John Newton said, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, but Christ 
is a great Savior. So the praise team is going to come back. They're going to lead us in a song of response. And perhaps for you, you may need to be made alive today. And I would love to talk more with you about what it means to believe in Jesus and to pass from death into life. And you can come forward while we're singing, and we can chat then, or you can come see me or Tad or Miss Danielle or someone later. But maybe you're here and you've believed, but you've, maybe you've believed in the last five minutes or maybe for five years, but you've never taken that step of baptism. We'd love to talk to you about scheduling that. Uh, again, you can come forward during the song or you can find Tad, Miss Danielle, a deacon, the person sitting next to you, uh, uh, Curtis in the back, and he'll set you up. We'll get you set up and, and, and make, make an appointment for you to be baptized and to tell the world what has happened inside your heart. There's another time that Paul said, what shall we say to these things? And I, I'd love to just leave us on this. So I'll read a few verses and we'll sing. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, a, a great message of, of grace that I think will lead us into our next song. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.